Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets, songwriters, and artists, including Olivia Gatwood, Safia El Hilo, Dana Joya, and many more. We also feature periodic submitted poetry episodes. Visit viewlesswings.com to submit your original poetry. I'm your host, James Moorhead, Poet Laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas, Portraits of Red and Gray, and The Plague Doctor. Hit subscribe and follow me on Instagram or threads at Viewless Wings. Jared Harrell is the author of Let Our Bodies Change the Subject, selected by Kwame Dawes as the winner of the 2022 Roz Schumacher Prairie Schooner Book Prize in Poetry. University of Nebraska Press, 2023. And Go Because I Love You, Diode Editions, 2018. He's been awarded the Stanley Kunitz Memorial Prize from American Poetry Review, as well as the William Matthews Poetry Prize from Asheville Poetry Review. Harold's poems have recently appeared in such journals as 32 Poems, Beloit Poetry Journal, Electric Literature, Lit Hub, Plowshares, Poem a Day, The Southern Review, and The Sun. He teaches writing, plays drums, and lives with his family in Westchester, New York. Jared, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Hey there, nice to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about your book. Yeah, um, no, I, I love this podcast. I, um, I've listened to some episodes. I really liked the Sean Singer one, the Olivia Gottwood one. Pleasure to be here. Yes, it's every single one of these. I, I learned something new. There's some unique element that always pops out, and you pulled out two great examples, both wonderful books from those two poets. Well, Let Our Bodies Change a Subject is largely anchored on your experiences. What is your first memory of writing for pleasure? Not because you'd been required to write for a school assignment. Uh, you know, when did you first discover and fall in love with poetry that you can remember? Well, for me, those are slightly different questions. I first, I wrote books and would, would like have my mom staple them together when I was very, very young, um, you know, probably before I could write properly, but I would make these books and I would draw on them and, you know, uh, it would go from there. Um, and that was when I was very young. So I was drawn towards storytelling and, and, and language and that early on. And then I got into basketball and junior high and all that. And my, my mind went away from all those things. And then it was uh, my senior year in high school. I had uh, an English teacher named uh, Mrs. Schmidt, and she gave us a poetry writing assignment and kind of brought me back into it. And I think it was the right time because it was my senior year in high school and it was sort of a transitional moment in my life. And I was you know, being like, okay, well, who am I? What am I interested in? You know, clearly I wasn't going to make it in the NBA. So, <laughs> and so I just gravitated toward poetry and it felt like um, sort of a way to sort of mark time. Suddenly everything felt like it was going really fast. And for me, poems suddenly became this way to mark time um, and, and keep things in place for a little longer. Wonderful. Well, I had a 10th grade creative writing teacher that turned me on to poetry too. And it's just for all the teachers that are listening, you, you can have an incredible impact in one class, one moment, one interaction. And uh, it's just incredible. Yeah, one of the cool things actually that came out from having uh, my first book uh, of poetry published was I put that teacher in the acknowledgments and I was like, you know, actually I should see if I should let her know. And we're actually friends now. We, we meet up for lunch every few months and, and oh. it's kind of 
reconnect. That's wonderful. Well, I, when I did my, after 40 years of writing poetry for friends and family and not just having the nerve to be more public about it, a friend nudged me to be more public. And when I finally published my first book, I tracked down the English teachers that I had, including that teacher, and sent them all copies of the book. Most of them have been retired and they were thrilled to say the least. So yes, if you've done, if your teachers affected you in some way, take the time to, to seek them out. That'll make their day or their entire year. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, the opening lines of the first poem in this collection, which you're going to read uh, later, Sad Roller Coaster, starts, My daughter is in the kitchen working out death. She wants to get it, how it tastes and feels. What is your approach to crafting such powerful poems from your memories? You know, poems start where they start. Sometimes my daughter, uh, she, you know, some, I joke that she gives me some of my best lines sometimes. Um, sometimes they start with, an, with a moment, an incident. Um, you know, I'm always around my kids, so they, they kind of work their way into my poems kind of organically, I would say. Um, and sometimes it starts with a phrase, um, with that poem in particular, my daughter had been, she was, I think she was seven then, and questioned by incisive, specific questions. She was working her way toward this, you know, what is death? What does it mean? And so that poem was sort of in my head for a while. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was kind of a gradual storytelling. Of, and, it, and it works its way around the city too, you know, we're in Queen Zoo, we're at Coney Island, we're in and around. And for me, that one was bubbling around for a while. And then when we were at Coney Island at the, at the baseball game, at the Cyclones game, and it clicked for her, that, that's when I knew there was probably a poem there. You it's know? interesting that you say that. This, there's, you know, it rattles around your head, and then all of a sudden you, it gets more concrete, and it just has to be written down. And I've had that feeling, too, where there's just sort of bubbling around, and, but I haven't figured out a way to capture it. And then it sort of appears, and you start the work. Yeah, that's really cool that you've had that same experience. Yeah, normally if I have an experience and it sticks with me, like a week later I'm still thinking about it or two weeks later I'm still thinking about it for whatever reason, then I'm like, you know, there might be a poem there. There, there might be something I want to articulate or, you know, kind of hammer down. I, I think of writing as sort of this act of discovery. And so if, if I'm still thinking about it, it means there's something left to discover. Yeah, and it has to get out. Exactly. In the poem, If I Never Find God, it's an example of a very short poem that the reader is compelled to reread a few times, at least I was. You wrote, If I never find God, it may be because I search, like how my daughter dawdles about our modest two-bedroom, dreamy, off-kilter, driving me mad, too lucky to really look for her elusive other shoe. This reads as though the poem just appeared effortlessly, but very short poems can be so tricky to craft with every syllable exposed. How do you approach writing very short poems? I think you're right. So sometimes short poems take a long time. You know, often I'll write and write and write. One, one example, this is the poem in my collection on suffering. I wrote a, like, I was basing that on uh, Vishlava Zimborska's poem on death without exaggeration, in which she uses personification and all these examples and humor, her dry humor. And so I'd started doing that as well. And I was, you know, using personification and all these examples. And then I wrote the line, um, to be clear, I'm no expert. Mm -hmm. And that struck me as the first true thing I'd said in the poem. And so eventually what happened was I took this fairly long poem and I cut all of it and I started at that line to be clear i'm no expert and it became a, a fairly short poem 
you know, on suffering. But with this poem, I think it never was a longer poem, mm-hmm. but I did spend a long time on every word because there were so few of them. And I wanted to make sure every word did its work. And I was trying to, you know, I, I was, uh, the poem is after Baruch and Yehoshua November, who are two great poets um, and friends of mine. And they, they seem to have a more secure relationship with Judaism and God uh, and their work. And so I was reading their work and I was, you know, wondering, I'm like, you know, what, what is my relationship toward faith? You know, often it's, it's very confused and not really hammered down in a, in a way that feels secure to me. You know, sometimes I'm mad at God. Sometimes I'm just curious sometimes, you know? And so I was like, and I sort of, in that moment, I was like, is it just that I, I haven't needed him in that way yet, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the, waiting for that other shoe to drop was, was kind of that, um, was that metaphor that worked its way in there. It's the idea of searching, but not really caring if you find it or not. And so I knew in that poem, I wanted to hit that image. And so um, I didn't know it was going to be a short poem, but once I got that image, I was like, you know what, let me leave that alone. Because the poem sort of answered the question of the title. No, I think you gave two great examples there. One is a poem that that ultimately demanded to be short, early on and it became for another one that was a very long poem where you deleted a bunch. And I think one thing poets have to, as they're evolving, have to get over the fear of deletion. Mm. And, and my deletion test is, and I even use this in a business context with corporate presentations. If you've deleted something and you're uncomfortable deleting it, but then five minutes later, you can't even remember that you deleted it, then it never needed to be there. If you deleted it and then a day or two later, you're still thinking about it. Well, maybe you went too far and you got yeah, to go that's, back. Yeah, I think that's a good rule. And I, I always keep uh, earlier versions of my work. So like in my Word document, it'll be like poem X1, poem X5, 27, so on and so forth. So I've been in situations where I've tightened and revised the life out of it, out of a poem. And then I'm like, oh, I think I went too far. And then I go back to an earlier version and, and see if I can find it. Yeah, one thing that happened during the pandemic is I started uh, – having, you know, stress, stressful nights because of the pandemic and not able to sleep. So I started writing poetry on my, which I mentioned in a couple other episodes, on my phone mm-hmm. in dark mode using Google Docs. Prior to that, I had done everything longhand, but in the middle of the night, I'd, my wife would not be happy if I turned on the light and started writing. So what, the benefit of that is if you do stuff in Google Docs, you get a complete revision history for free. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating. I've used, I, when I've gone into classrooms to talk to students, I will show the exact timestamp and original thoughts I wrote down mm. and all the revisions through to the final poem. And it's really uh, fascinating. So yes, I think having a history somehow is really valuable, especially it removes the fear of deletion too, because, well, I can always go back. It's not, yeah. it's deleted now, but I still have it if I really, really want it back, which I rarely do. Yeah. There's actually a really cool online journal out now called Midst. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. Which so it's basically um, the poems. So like it's a, it's a it's like a video of the creation of the poem. So you'll write in their software, and then um, the poem you'll see the, whoever reads the poem can either just read the poem or see the video of how the poem is written out and like all the revisions. And so you kind of get a surgical look at how the poem is is, is brought to its uh, completed form, and then you can go back and revise it months later if you want, and the video can update. Oh, wild. I love that. That's a, I had not heard of that. That's really, really cool. Yeah, yeah no, it was, it was really interesting for me. And I was, I was happy to be part of it. <laughs> well, some of the poems in this collection view the world through the eyes of children, indirectly through your children, 
and through the, your memories as a child. In Behind the Painted Guardrail, you connect both views. You wrote, In truth, my mother knew little about me, but loved both the me I was and wasn't, a devotion so bright I'd vanished in its glow. And you mentioned this earlier. How has having children changed and influenced your writing? And in quite a few ways. I mean, I'd say that having children certainly was a turning point uh, in my writing life because suddenly, you know, nobody's out there asking for your poems, you know, like generally speaking, you know, nobody's going to knock on your door and be like, hey, that poem's due at five o'clock today, <laughs> yes. you know? Um, and suddenly time is so much more precious when you have kids. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, sometimes I was paying a babysitter, you know, for a couple hours, you know, so I could write and, and get work done. And I was really fortunate in that way. But if you, if, if you know, there's time crunch is so, uh, pressing, you're not going to be kind of, you know, going on Facebook and so on and so forth. You're going to use that time. And so it really was kind of a, a put up or shut up time for me as a writer where I'm like, well, no, it's important enough that I, it needs to be prioritized enough for me to do this. And so I think for me as a writer, I became a more serious writer when I had kids. Mm. Uh, I think also the world became a scarier place for me when I had kids. Suddenly, um, the danger. I mean, there's always, the world's a very scary place. This week is a prime example of that. Um, but I think the, the fear sort of, you know, went up a level with, with children for me. Um, and I think that was a theme that I, I explore a lot in my work, that, that idea of kind of love and loss, uh, feel, you know, feeling both fortunate and like it's all going to hell and how to, how to raise kids in a world like that, you know? But yeah, no, and it also terms of the poem that you referenced behind the painted guardrail it definitely gave me a fresh lens into uh, my childhood and also my own parents i would say you know so sort of seeing them as you know people who were young and made mistakes and were winging it just like i am you know and so i think that poem which is like three to three generations it's you know my mom me and then my child um it like it was it was a reflection point i'm like oh i and the lines you pointed at were those was that moment of discovery mm -hmm. yeah, that like my mom actually for, for as much as she adored and adores me and it's like it's a, I'm super lucky in that way she you know it, it almost clouded the way she saw me <laughs> um, you know it was it was a, a devotion that sort of was blinding um, it was weird last month when the book came out and uh, at my book launch I read that poem and she hadn't heard it and oh it was wonderful <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's always a little bit of a of a mind, you know, twist, kind of reading these poems and putting them in the world when they're suddenly, you know, they have the audience in front of you. <laughs> I mean, for poets with young children, the and I went, I you know, when I had young children, it was you 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 did a bunch of inspiration, but you also have such fractured time that that you have to be more deliberate and conscious about the time that you do get. I remember I, I one of the poets that I. Uh, talked to uh talked about how with young kids they would just sort of scribble notes on things in between making dinner and just yeah. find little moments and, and having to get comfortable with not having like a dedicated here's my one hour of focused poetry time but poems are sort of built in little nibs and nubs throughout the day yeah. yeah you become resilient i remember when my daughter was first born i would sort of revise in my head while pushing a stroller you know right. I'd, I'd, these walks and like it was a great place to like keep a poem in your head and like you know 
kind of churn it. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I think that uh, poems take a deceptively can take a deceptively long time to write, despite mm-hmm. the small amount of space they take up on the page. Yeah, I, I don't know quite how novelist parents do it. I, I yes, <laughs> exactly. I was thinking the same thing because then you've got such an enormous number of words to craft, or you know, someone writing a two-minute song versus someone writing a, a two-hour score for a movie. It, it's just you know, I don't. It's just there's no magic wand. It takes longer. Yeah, I feel like in the time I had, it would be me reading to get back into the work, and by the time I like got back into the work, I'd like be out of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, your poem, Slow Dance, capturing an awkward, special moment when boys and girls from two summer camps meet for a dance, is something most readers will have experienced at some point. I have a similar poem in my first book about a crush, and I love how audiences respond and relate to the poem and tie it to their experiences. What do you learn about your poetry through the response of an audience, whether that's someone who's talking about your book or, or actually alive reading and getting feedback in real time? Yeah, I do. I do learn a lot from it because especially now that I'm going, you know, the book's out and I'm giving these readings and sometimes, you know, we'll laugh at something that I didn't realize was funny or, Mm. you know, certain poems will really strike readers that I was like, oh, I didn't think that was the one that people would necessarily gravitate toward. But I think readers always, I think readers kind of complete a poem in a way, you know, a poem is, I bring it as far as I can bring it, I edit it, I revise it, I bring it out to the world and then a reader and their own experiences sort of complete the poem. And, and then it, it becomes something new. And so seeing kind of the reviews and interviews and responses at readings really, um, I find them super helpful and interesting. It actually crystallized a lot of the things that I thought I knew about the book, but you know, it kind of gave them a different language. And I think some of that was intentional. I don't want to know exactly what I'm doing while I'm doing it, you know? And so after it's the book's out, then yeah, absolutely. It's cool to see that. But I like that element of mystery and just kind of creating without being too aware of what I'm doing, that idea of writing toward discovery, you know? So, but I do think the reader sort of completes the poem. And readers, I think yeah, slow dance. Readers yeah, complete the poem. That is absolutely <laughs> a pull quote. If I were, <laughs> the, the moment you said it, I love that. And that's something I hadn't heard someone articulate quite that way before. That's wonderful. Well, I've asked many of the poets invited on this podcast about their process for organizing and ordering their collections. How did you approach the challenge for Let Our Bodies Change the Subject? Which poems to include, which to edit out, how to order the poems, and then dividing the poems into sections in your case? Mm. Well, my book sort of lives in a single word document for a long time. So I can kind of, and it's, it's sort of put together chronologically or somewhat haphazardly. Um, and then when I think I have enough poems for a book or it's starting to get to one, I'll generally print it all out and put it out and like set it on like the biggest floor I have in my house, which, you know, is sometimes my kitchen, I guess. And I know there's some certain poems I want near each other. I know there's certain poems I want far away from each other. And then what I'll do is I'll take a look at the endings of poems and the beginnings of other poems and sort of see how they talk to each other and, and link them up almost like train cars. Like, so if someone were to read the end of this poem and then read the beginning of the next one, what, what, what do those poems do to each other? How do they sort of commingle? <laughs> yeah. And then I, there's poems that I'm like, oh, I know this. I want this early. I know I want this late. And that, that's the way I sort of make a, a first draft of an order. 
and then I'll read through and revise. I like having sections to kind of break up the, you know, I like starts and stops. I think one thing I love about being a, a, a poem writer is how often I get to start and stop, like how often I get to write a beginning and write an ending. You know, going back to novelists, they only get one beginning, they only get one ending, like every, every like year or two or three or four. Um, so I like the idea of having openings and closings and then restarts. So uh, so sections made sense for me in, that, in, in, in this collection. Um, poems that felt like a, a, a pause or, you know, a filling station and then a way to restart. In Kin, you beautifully connect multiple memories of your parents, of your wife, of your five-year-old, loosely through the game of Uno, awesome game. You wrote, but I remember after he won and yelped quietly with delight, how my son's small hands pressed the scattered cards together, both together and toward me to reshuffle the deck. Talk about constructing this poem and how you created connections between disparate images to create a single theme and poem. Yeah, this one is the kind of poem I think of as almost like a collage. Mm. Once in a while, I'll write poems that feel to me like collages. Um, and I'll know I'm in one when I have a bunch of moments or memories that feel kind of far apart and I'm bringing them together around a single theme and this theme, obviously generational family and all that. Um, and I think the, the cards felt like a metaphor for that as well, but bringing the cards together toward a, toward a single unified whole and bringing the family together as a sort of unified whole, you know, toward, you know, together and toward me and that sort of connection between a father and a son image at the end. And that, that image at the end owes a little bit to Larry Levis uh, as well. And he had a poem on, which escapes me right now. I think it might be in my notes, and the end of the poem, I think his son was pushing bread toward him or something like that. Mm. There, there's there's an echo of it. And I don't think I was consciously doing it when I wrote the poem, but I remember revising the poem and being like, you know what? I think that that that, that came from a, a Larry Levis poem and that reminded me of that. And I liked I liked that. That also generational kind of passing down. You know, I think the what what I read and the poets who come before are, you know are so much in the work that we write, you know? I think reading and writing are sort of these simultaneous activities for me. Me, me writing is usually me reading a stack of books. And then at some point, you know, like, here it is, you know? There he is. <laughs> I have a similar, I have a similar stack, yes. <laughs> and then uh, something sparks something in my own life and I'll, and I'll, and then I'll come to the page, you know? And sometimes I have, a poet or two or a poem or two that model it, that model what I'm trying to do, you know, it always comes out different, you know? Because, <laughs> you know, I think I was talking to Mark Doty once uh, and he said that sometimes when people think they innovate, they actually emulate. And sometimes when people think they emulate, they actually innovate, you know? <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it always becomes, you know, even if I'm trying to write a poem in the mode of or in the style of, it always, it always tends out to be very different. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, for, if you want to write well, you have to read well. Uh, yeah. There's really no avoiding that. And it can be, I, I enjoy it when I read a book where I get jealous in a constructive way yeah. of what a po poet or writer has created and, and use it as a challenge. And uh, an example of that is I interviewed uh, uh, Carmen DiBiase, who's wrote a trilogy of, Sestinas inspired by 
characters in Shakespeare, and he's he's a retired professor, but his his area of expertise was in Shakespeare, and they were just extraordinary sestinas uh, that hid the form so effectively. I was determined to find, you know, an opportunity to write a sestina, which is an absolutely masochistic poet, yeah. <laughs> poetry <laughs> form. <Power to> you. <laughs> and uh, and then I ended up uh, after over like a year and a half, maybe two years, I found finally found the poem where that would make sense. And mm. I wouldn't have done it had I not seen these wonderful examples. On the other hand, Dana Joya wrote a, a, a Sistina about the academic nature of Sistinas and that they tend to be university MFA projects and come off very <laughs> stilted. So, um, yeah, it's uh, I think but reading, read, write well, to write well, you have to read well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'd say if whenever someone has writer's blocker just feels like they're in a rut i always say read widely you know and that's usually the best antidote yeah it gets you hungry it gets you mm -hmm. just hungry to create i felt that feeling too when i've read something that i really enjoy it just makes me want to create absolutely and i think the opposite's true too like sometimes if i'm in a writing rut it's because i'm i also find that I'm, i can't even read well actually mm. in those moments you know, like if I can't even read well, then I know that it's going to be really hard for me to write right. something. <laughs> well, in Primal, you visualize the poem in short segments, one to three words each, staggered in two columns, snaking down the page. During the revision and editing process, how does the visual form emerge in your poems using this poem, perhaps as an example? Yeah, there's, there's two poems in the collection that have sort of that staggered look. Uh, Primal, which you mentioned, and Self-Portrait as Nature Preserve. Um, and both of those poems started as single single stanza uniform poems, uh, as most of my poems do. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they, I, I change sort of out of necessity. And those were both poems that felt they needed a change. They, they didn't feel right in their current form. They, they, I, You know, with Primal, for example, I liked the idea of sort of these you know, it's, it's about being afraid of the dark and this, these pri this primal idea of how it's built into us to be afraid of what we can't see. And so I liked the idea of having space, of having that sort of pop-out effect in the poem. And I felt like it needed to be more staggered, needed, needed to be more irregular on the page mm -hmm. to convey that, that feeling of, of something sort of coming out of nowhere at you. And in a single stanza, regular, you know, free verse, it, it, it didn't, properly convey that in my eyes so it comes out of necessity it's not like my go-to mode to, to to overly experiment on the page but i felt like you know that's what craft is that's you know it's a tool in your tool belt yes. and i'm like every tool you use the same amount but i'm like those two poems in the collection needed that particular tool i think for me to um you know feel like they were working in their best form um, i actually also happen to like when collections you know every once in a while just pull like curveball, do something a little different. Yeah. You know? uh, I was talking to the poet JC Todd actually a couple nights ago in Philadelphia and I, I did a reading there and she said one, one, what, one of the things she likes about those kind of poems that break the normal form for a writer is that they then make the quote unquote regular form that the poet uses a determined choice. It shows that what they're, the way they put a poem together 80, 90% of the time is, you know, a determined choice and what their thought process is behind those as well. So it's kind of the, the negative relief as well. 
<laughs> no, I had a poem in my first book where uh, it was sort of very zenny and image rich and conceptual. And I had this uh, this Tibetan singing bowl on my desk, this <clears> little bowl, which I hit it and it just chills me out. It's a beautiful sound. And, and then I added that image in and then I thought, this poem needs to look Zen. And then mm -hmm. I ended up making it sort of expand, you know, tiny and expand and like almost a sound wave, but a zeny sound wave. And then with that idea, all of a sudden now I had to, I had to edit the poem to work without cheating and using like different line spacing. And uh, it just sort of at a certain point, yeah, you, the, the visual form on the page may not be too important, but sometimes it's critically important and it's an important tool. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it also, the visual also informed how the poem worked rhythmically. Mm -hmm. And I'm a drummer as well. And so for me, uh, rhythm is very important. And I always edit out loud. I read the poem over and over again. And that's how I revise. And so I'll, I'll you know, I'll take the cues, the line breaks, the spaces, and how I read the poem and how I, you know, work my way down the page. And if something feels off, if there's like a kink in the rhythm, that's how I usually find it through, through reading out loud. Well, a couple more questions before I turn the mic over to you to read selections from your book. Dolls Can't Talk is a wonderful poem to close the collection. And as poems should do, it really ends with an opening. You wrote, mm -hmm. I've tried to stay near you, but not interfere. Grading essays or now writing this poem. Your fingers trace their smug, ageless faces. How long have you suspected we might be alone? You talked a little bit about ordering your collection and doing the thing that I've done as well, which is print it all out and put it in a physical space. Uh, what was your thought process for selecting which poem should close the collection? And then having made that choice, did the poem need to change in any way? Mm, yeah, good question. For me, the opening of the poem, opening the collection with Sad Roller Coaster was something I came to early. I, you know, I decided on that pretty early that I wanted to... Oh, be that, have that be my opening poem. I think it brings in the themes of family, love, death. It brings in, you know, the city, New York City, where so much of the poem, a poetry collection was written. So I knew that was my opener. And I liked the way that opening, you know, my daughter's in the kitchen working out death, how that connected to that idea of, you know, how long have you suspected we might be alone? And that took, finding um, Dolls Can't Talk as my closer took a lot longer. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think it's, and that made sense. I had to sort of go through a few other last poems and see what I thought. But it was a similar thing of first, you know, endings and beginnings. How 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 was the poem as a whole talking to each other? I think it might have been Natalie Shapiro who um, saw an early version of the manuscript and gave me some super helpful notes. And as a poet, I I adore um, who maybe had said, well, "How about that poem as the closer?" And I, at first, I I didn't think. I didn't think so, but then I would, I would kind of went back to it and back to it. And I was like, you know, actually, I think you're right. <laughs> no, it's like the endings of poems is a very challenging aspect of writing a poem. And then on top of that, the last poem in a collection is like a challenge on top of a challenge. And it really makes you, at least for me, I think about the last line of the last poem, the last thing that they're going to read. Um, assuming they skip over the acknowledgments, <laughs> is, is, uh, is, is very challenging. Well, before turning the mic over to you, what have you learned through your writing students that has influenced your writing? One of the things I've, I've, I've been really fortunate about with my students is that they've come from a real diverse set of experiences and places. And so it's really kind of 
expanded that aspect of my life and my, my reading and my worldview. And I'm always kind of interested in what they're bringing to the page. And I think, you know, we workshop and I often tell my students that uh, doing workshop can be more helpful than getting your own work, getting feedback on your own work because you get that sort of cognitive distance as well. And so I think that's another thing that's really nice. The idea of kind of building community, getting students to like fall in love with poems. You know, I, I often teach intro to creative writing or intro to poetry and a lot of students come to class thinking uh, most poets are dead or, you know, poems are these uh, riddles that the teacher knows the answer to, but, you know, nobody else does. <laughs> and you have to sort of figure out the answer. And so I think that's something that has been, it's been nice getting students to fall in love with poetry. And then I kind of helps me continuously fall in love with poetry as well. Wonderful. That ties back to, I'm sure there are students out there that you've influenced in some way that they mostly won't tell you about, but it has definitely happened. So based on your story early on and mine as well. Uh, well, now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read selections from Let Our Bodies Change the Subject. Okay. So I'm going to read a few poems from my collection, Let Our Bodies Change the Subject, which came out just last month from University of Nebraska Press. I'll start with the opening poem in the collection, a Sad Roller Coaster, which, as we mentioned, kind of was inspired by a summer in which my daughter sort of question by incisive question came to understand death in her own way. Sad roller coaster. My daughter is in the kitchen working out death. She wants to get it, how it tastes and feels. Her teacher talks like it's some glittery gold sticker. Her classmates hear rumors, launch it as a curse when toys aren't shared. Between bites of cantaloupe, she considers what she knows. Her friend's grandpa lives only in her iPad. Dr. Seuss passed, but keeps speaking in rhyme. We go to Queen's Zoo and spot the beakish skull of a white-tailed deer tucked between rocks in the puma's enclosure. It's just for show, I explain, explaining nothing. That night and the one after, my daughter dreams of bones, how they lift out of her skin and try on her dresses. So silly, she laughs when I ask if she's okay. Then toward the back end of summer, we head to Coney Island to catch a Cyclones game. We buy popcorn and fries and pop fly arcs over checkerboard grass. When past the warning track, the park wall, she sees a giant wooden spine, this brownish red maze traced in decay. She calls it sad roller coaster, then begs to be taken home. So one thing about this collection and ha having kids is that it gave me sort of a fresh lens, as we were saying, to kind of see my own parents and my own childhood. Uh, so this next poem I'm going to read actually draws on the Jewish practice of morning, early morning prayers. And to fill in, uh, contain a set of black leather boxes and straps with verses from the Torah inside. And so my dad, for most of my childhood, every morning would put on tefillin and pray, but he's not a religious person. Uh, he's pretty much secular in every other way, but it's one thing he would do in the morning and it was sort of this ritual. And then years ago, I you know, moved out for college and so on and so forth. And at some point I forgot that he did it. And then I walked into their house one day and I saw him with tefillin on and it was so strange because I'd forgotten it, it was something he did. And uh, this poem kind of arose out of that feeling. Tefillin. 
You think you know your life till you forget your own father prays every morning, unzips a velvet pouch to wrap worn leather strips about his left arm and hand seven times around like dressing a wound. You forget he prays in greased blue coveralls before the workday rush of mufflers and brake pads and that he prays on Sundays in sweatpants and socks. He sets a black box a centimeter above his hairline, slaps a yarmulke upon his skull, prays, then stops. You think you know your life, but forget your father has done this since you were six, since a thin, kindly rabbi spent a week in your home. How could you forget? It's true your life no longer confides in you. For too long, you've been wary, screening its calls like a bookie you have lost all resources to repay. You forget your father prays the way he does paperwork, all alone and without enough light. He never makes a show of it, never once offered to teach you how. You think you know your life until the power sparks out one snowy December morning. So you climb your parents' stairs with your two children and laundry in tow, and there's a stranger by the curtains, his eyes squeezed shut, toes arrowed toward Jerusalem bound in black lines. Hmm. And the third poem I'm gonna read is the title poem for the collection. And one of the themes in the collection is this sort of uh, twin impulse to look away and look, to sort of bear witness, even when, maybe especially when the world's a place that's hard to look at. I wrote it after uh, a mass shooting in this country. The fact that I don't remember which mass shooting it was is telling. And it's it sort of, starts with a conversation my wife and I had in our living room uh, that night. Let our bodies change the subject. In the kitchen, with the kids finally asleep and news of another shooting in the space between us, you confess you think death might feel like giving birth, the body insistent, having its way. You say you'd never been so at the mercy of yourself as you were on that bed in that cloud thin gown and just the knowing it was coming, ruthless transformation. I have no good response to ruthless transformation. And so it hangs there above a bowl of tortilla chips and black bean salsa we've decided will be dinner. It lingers while a reporter frames chaos as developments, her shoulders rinsed in darkness and revolving red lights. I want to kiss you build asylum inside you, let our bodies change the subject, the channel to cartoons. Before night pulls away down the flickering interstate, I want one ruined thing utterly redeemed, a death toll rescinded, a swastika removed, my uncle's melanoma caught early enough to cut, a beige band-aid halfway down his calf. It had looked, my aunt said, like little more than an ink spot. I didn't get nervous till it didn't wash out. Thank you. It is always so wonderful and powerful to hear poems read by the poet. It's my favorite part of each of these interviews. And I'm glad that it, uh, as I, in the early, three years ago when I started this podcast and was figuring out what it was going to be and how it was going to work, this format has worked really well. And this is just a wonderful example of that. So thank you very much. Well, connected to that, what is your process for preparing a poem to being recited, which uh, I don't believe people are born with this 
ability. They learn it over time, either through osmosis or through coaching or a combination. And certainly I had to, I enlisted a poetry coach uh, who is actually a, a, a friend of my older daughters who graduated at the same time and went on to USC to get a screenwriting degree and then also competes in poetry reciting competitions. So I hired him to to take me from horrible to at least acceptable. And now I have another person I've interviewed in the podcast who I met up with recently, who's a, just a wonderful performance poet and jazz mm-hmm. singer. And she said, hey, you know what? You're good, but you could go to the next level. So I'm actually going to get coaching from her. And oh, I gave cool. her one of my poems to read blind. And it was, whoa, there's a <clears> whole <throat> other level that I have to aspire towards and I'm determined to get to. So that preparing, how do you personally prepare a poem to be read? Yeah, I don't know where I am on that level. My Initially, when I would start reading poems in public, my goal was to be clear and to slow down. I think most people, mm. when, they, when they're nervous, they speed up. So the initial impulse uh, was to make sure I slowed down. And also most people who are hearing a poem haven't heard the poem. They don't have it in front of them. And so just having been to a bunch of poetry readings, I like, I generally feel like sometimes a, a reader is reading too fast. I almost never feel like they're reading too slowly uh, for me. And so that's at first something I kept in mind. And then as I moved past that, as I wasn't nervous to give readings anymore and was able to sort of be clear and slow and at least kind of clear that bar, then the goal is to, read the poem the way you hear it in your in your mind, you know, the ultimate version of, of the poem. And that I get, well, the nice thing is, like I said, when I revise, I read out loud. So I'm reading this poem, you know, over and over and over again anyways. So I get very, very familiar with hearing the poem in my voice and the sound and the rhythms that I'm going for. So that by the time I've gotten to the end of the poem, I usually have a pretty good idea of how I want it to sound on the page and in, you know, and also out loud. And, and that's kind of my guiding, my guiding rhythm, my guiding voice for the poem. Well, you make a really important point, which is I wrestle with too, because I'm East coast and my natural (laughs) talking speed is fast. And I have to consciously think to slow down when I'm interviewing people so they can make sure they got the question. And yeah, I've never ever, gone to a reading and thought, oh my goodness, that was, they were just reciting too slow. That's never happened. And so my natural instinct of what I think is slow is probably waste too fast still. (laughs) It is really hard. It's almost like I need, I need like a technology haptic feedback to buzz me when I'm going too fast and get me to remember. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm born and raised New Yorker, so I'm sure I'm still reading a little too fast. You know, I was listening to this I think we have a podcast talking about like parts of the country and how fast we uh, speak and how in New York, like speaking over someone is a sign of interest and engagement. Mm. Like you talk to them, that's in the rhythm of the conversation, but that in the South, that's rude. Right, right. <laughs> and so I found that I was in, you know, with my family in South Carolina and someone would be talking and I'd be like chiming in to like, you know, encourage and like, show engagement and they'd stop, they'd stop short. It's like, stop when I spoke. And I was like, Oh, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm so sorry. You know, like, <laughs> well, it's like, like it sounds so rude here. <laughs> that's like with uh, comedians have this, I, a concept of uh, when they're performing, anticipating the laugh. 
so that you don't step on the laughter and then people get afraid to laugh. So I'm I, with uh, with the reciting a poem, I try to internalize anticipating the think mm. where they're going to likely need a moment to absorb something. And that gap of space is just it's uh, it's it's hard to leave silence. It's mm. almost like silence. It's interesting on the, on the page. I'm just thinking of this now. We use blank space as a tool but silence when you're reciting is a tool too. And I'm going to reflect on that because, yeah, it's, it's, there's something about silence that makes you squirm when it shouldn't. Yeah, I like that, anticipate the think. Because you're right, I will anticipate what might be a place where, where an audience will laugh and, give it, and, try, and try not to step on that. But I like that idea of a spot where the audience might want to beat, the reader might want to beat to just sit with that before I move on. I like uh, that. I like that note. Yeah. I, that's like sort of came up with that on the fly. So I'm going to reflect on that. <laughs> well, finally, what are you working on now in addition to promoting this book? I am working on new poems and I'm at kind of the fun earlier stages where I'm working on poems. I'm not working on a collection. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of can go anywhere and everywhere. I find that at some point in the process, once I have a lot of poems and I'm like, print them out and do that thing. I'll start writing into the gaps, you know, being like, okay, what does this collection need? You know, and write toward those, those gaps, those spaces, those themes. But right now I'm, I'm just trying to write, you know, sometimes I feel like what I'm writing is the only thing I can write in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm writing the only thing I can write in that moment, which is, you know, the poems I'm working on. Uh, we recently moved after 15 years from Queens, New York to Westchester. So there's a lot more trees and, you know, the Hudson River is here. So the, the new landscape I've, I've noticed is working its way into my poems as well. I wrote an ode to the leaf blower <laughs> you know, <laughs> months ago. And I was like, oh, wow, look at this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so. Well, Jared, thank you for sharing your poetry and your voice on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. It's been wonderful talking to you. That's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Instagram, threads, and YouTube at Viewless Wings. Hit subscribe to be notified of every episode of the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast and spread the word with your poetry community.